This conference will now be recorded. All right, good afternoon and welcome to our session on civil traffic and marijuana hearings. Uh, and yes, we've added the marijuana part this year. That, that is now official. Uh, so I am Charles Adernetto. Uh Joining us today is the, the new presiding uh, civil traffic hearing officer for the Phoenix Municipal Court. Uh, Judge Villa was promoted just before everything went to heck. Uh, so just in time for the pandemic, she was promoted. Uh, very well deserved. Judge uh, Villa is a former prosecutor. She um, uh, is very active in the community and she does teach uh, civil for the AOC, for the Magistrate Associ Association, and several years now for the Maricopa County Justice Courts. Uh, so we really appreciate Judge Villa's contributions and um, uh, we'll go ahead and get started, Judge Villa. All right. Well, thank you, Judge Adonetto. Welcome, everyone. Um, I'm very happy to be here with you guys uh, again this year. We missed last year due to the pandemic. Um, so I'm glad to see so many of you here, although I can't see your faces, but that's fine. All right. So let me go ahead and share the screen here so that that way you can see what I'm doing. All right, and hopefully everyone can see that. Uh, Judge Ardonetto, I can't, now that I'm sharing the screen, I can't see the participants anymore. So can you let me know if it's up on the screen? Absolutely. Okay, perfect. All right, and so also, Judge, if you can let me know if there are questions as we're going through, because I've completely lost my participant window. So, all right, everyone. So um, I'm going to be doing the civil traffic portion, and I know that the majority of you have already been on the bench for years and have done civil traffic cases. Um, so we're going to go pretty quickly through most of the um, most of the information because it's it's uh, foundational, and most of this is going to be review. Um, and we want to try and save as much time as possible for questions, uh, for whatever questions you have. All right, so first portion is we're going to go through how civil traffic hearings are conducted. Obviously, our major goal with all of this is to make sure that justice is, uh, is the overall goal that we are um, trying to make sure that the justice system, um, that the procedures and that the laws are followed um, in all of our courtrooms every time. So for the rules of procedure, civil traffic cases are their own individual animal, if you will. Um, we have our own set of rules. So when you have a civil traffic case, you want to make sure that you are following the Arizona rules of procedure in civil traffic and civil voting cases. Um, the rules of criminal procedure will not apply unless you have a um, criminal charge that is also filed on that complaint. Now, if you do have a combination with civil and criminal, um, if a criminal charge is dismissed and you only have civil case or civil charges left, then it reverts to the, the rules of civil traffic. So the criminal procedure rules only apply if you have an active criminal charge on that case. If you have purely civil active cases, uh, active civil charges, then it will be under the rules of civil traffic. Um, the rules of civil procedure do not apply in our cases except for the rules of process of ser uh, service of process. Um, and that's only in photo uh, enforcement cases 
or if you have other cases that are uh, served by um, other means other than being issued by the police officer. Um, some of the other procedures are contained in um, Title 28 of Arizona Revised Statutes. Uh, for example, time limits for filing a complaint, that is going to be listed in ARS. Um, it's not necessarily in the rules of procedure. Um, first rule, uh, and so when I'm referring to the rules here, I am referring to the rules of civil traffic. Um, so under Rule 12, the state is not required to be represented by counsel. And in most, um, most larger jurisdictions, even limited jurisdiction courts, um, the prosecutor's office does not represent the state in these cases. Um, if the state wishes to be represented by a prosecutor, it must inform the court and the defendant at least 10 calendar days before the hearing or within 10 calendar days of notice that the defendant will be represented by counsel. Um, one thing to always remember in these cases is that even when you don't have a prosecutor appearing, um, the officer will be the main um, witness, sometimes the only witness for the state on these cases. Um, and so the officers sometimes get the feeling that they have now been converted to prosecutors. Um, however, that is not the case. The officer is a witness. Um, they are not the prosecutor. They are not a party. Um, so they may not question witnesses, nor may, may they make legal arguments or objections. Now, in most civil traffic matters, you will have um, defendants who are representing themselves. Um, however, they do have a right to be, or they have the option of being represented by counsel if they so desire. Um, I do not know of any courts who appoint um, public defenders or court-appointed attorneys on civil traffic cases. Um, so if a defendant wants to be represented, it's usually at their own cost. Um, if they are going to be represented by an attorney, they must notify the court within uh, 10 and the state within 10 calendar days before the traffic hearing. Um, failure to comply with the rule means that the defendant's right to be represented has been waived. Um, however, I do get this question that comes up all the time. Um, what if defense counsel files a notice of appearance on the date of the hearing or um, if they file it uh, less than 10 days from, from the date of the hearing. Um, so at that point, you have a couple of options. Um, you can continue the case if you accept the notice of appearance. Um, you can continue the case uh, to, so that that way you give the state the option of appearing on the case since they now know that the defendant will be represented. Um, the other option, like what we do in our court, um, because we have a blanket turned down in civil traffic matters, we know that our prosecutors will not appear regardless if the defendant is represented or not. Um, so we will actually accept a notice of appearance if it's filed less than, than 10 days from the date of the hearing or even if it's filed on the date of the hearing itself. Um, we will enter the appearance of the attorney and we will allow them to proceed um, as long as they are prepared to do so. Now, again, the difficulty comes in when you have an attorney who files a notice of appearance um, that is untimely, um, and then they are then asking for a continuance so that they can prepare for the case. You will have to take that into consideration as to whether or not you want to um, allow that notice uh, for that attorney to appear and whether or not you want to continue the case. Um, failure to appear at hearing. Um, so if no witness appear, uh, for the state appears, 
the court shall dismiss the complaint unless a uh, good cause is shown as to why the state's witness has not appeared. So if you have a police officer who called in sick that day um, and you are advised of that, um, you can take that into account as to whether that is good cause or not. Um, if the state's witness appears and the defendant fails to appear, then you shall enter a default judgment. Um, again, you should still consider whether or not there's good cause shown. So if you have a defendant who filed a motion to continue um, because they're in the hospital or if they indicated that they would not be able to appear because of, of a good cause, um, you can uh, consider whether or not to continue the case. But if you've got no reason as to why they were not uh, present or you've got no good cause shown, um, then you should enter a default. Now, the exception to that is active military service. Um, because of the uh, Federal Service Persons Act, um, a, 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 a individual on active military duty cannot have a default judgment entered against them. Um, so if you are aware that a person is on active duty, you cannot enter the default. You have to continue the case um, until which time the person can, um, can either appear or somehow take care of the matter. Um, now, if you are not aware that they are in active duty, obviously you can enter the default, but if you are advised afterwards, um, then you should set the default aside if they were on active military duty. Um, if you have no one who appears on either side, no defendant and no state's witness, according to rules 21 and 22, you should dismiss the case um, if there is no good cause as to why the state's representative is not present. Um, the reason for that is obviously the state has the burden of proof. Um, this is part of the officer's duties uh, to appear in court uh, when they are subpoenaed to appear. And so if they do not appear, even if the defendant's not there, um, you should dismiss the case. Um, in our cases, we do not have any pre-hearing discovery um, absent extraordinary circumstances. So if you do have a complex case, let's say, for example, a multi-vehicle collision um, where there are multiple reports or maybe there's um, an extended, uh, extensive police report, extensive crash report that was written, um, then you can continue the case and you can actually um, advise the parties to exchange discovery and allow them time to review the discovery. Um, but other than that, there is no pre-hearing discovery in our cases. Uh, immediately before the hearing, both parties should produce for inspection any exhibits or recorded statements. Um, so what I do in my cases is when I call the parties up and I announce the case, I ask if either side has any exhibits. If they do, I ask them to um, show them to the other side so that they get an opportunity to um, inspect the exhibits. Um, and then we usually have them marked um, so that that way we don't have to do that during the hearing itself. Um, if the defendant requests a chance to see the officer's notes during the hearing, the officer must show them under Rule 13b. Um, I have had a couple of officers who have declined to do this during hearing, and I have had to direct them that under the rules they are required to show their notes. Um, usually this is because the officer has written some not-so-flattering things about the defendant, um, and so they don't want the person to see what they've written but the defendant does have that right to see what the officer's notes are um, and what they are using to, to uh, provide their testimony. So um, the order of proceedings is very similar to any other hearing um, and it's specifically in rule 19 of our rules. 
Um, so you have the state's uh, case in chief, which will uh, consist of the direct cross and redirect of the state's witnesses. Like I said, in most cases, uh, especially non-accident cases, you will have only one officer, perhaps two officers. Um, following the state's case in chief is the defense's case in chief, where you will have direct cross and redirect of the defendant's witnesses. Now, again, remember that um, the officers are not prosecutors and they are not allowed to question the witnesses uh, or they're not allowed to question any witnesses, particularly the defendant. So the cross-examination only refers to if the defendant is represented by counsel, um, although the judge or hearing officer is also allowed to ask questions of all witnesses as well. Um, following the defendant's case, if the defendant does put on a case, um, then uh, you do have the state's rebuttal. Um, and then if you allow uh, for a rebuttal, uh, it is the court's option to decide whether you want to offer the defendant's sir rebuttal or not. Um, argument of the parties is permitted by the court, but remember it has to be a party so that officers are not allowed to make um, closing arguments or, or opening statements either. Um, argument would only be if you have a prosecutor by the state um, or argument is allowable for defendants and for defense counsel. Um, and then following the evidentiary portion, then you uh, issue your ruling by the court. All right. Um, the testimony of all witnesses must be given under oath according to Rule 16a. Um, defendants who cite a religious objection can be asked to affirm their testimony rather than swearing. Um, so what I usually do when I'm swearing someone in is I do a combination. I say, do you solemnly swear or affirm that the testimony you are about to provide will be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Um, I've, I've been asked a lot of times um, whether it's preferable to swear in each witness just before they testify, or if you prefer to uh, swear in all witnesses at the beginning of the um, proceeding. Um, this is completely up to your discretion and it's up to just your preference. There is no rule as to when you have to swear in the witnesses. You just have to make sure that they are sworn in prior to them providing testimony. Um, my personal practice is I like to swear in both of the witnesses at the same time or all witnesses at the same time because um, particularly when you have self-represented individuals, they don't really know the difference between when it's their turn to testify and when they they just want to start giving you their story. Um, and so many times in these cases, when you ask an individual if they have questions for the officer, they will start right away with, you know, well, I don't really have questions, but the officer was wrong when he said this, 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 and this, and they go into essentially what is their testimony. Um, so that's why I like to do it. I, I find it to be a time-saving measure. Um, but if, if you prefer to do it, I've heard other judges who say they prefer to swear in each person at a time because it adds more of that element of formality and they want them to, to remember that they are under oath when they're providing their testimony. So whichever works for you, and you can try different combinations if you'd like, um, just make sure that you do swear them in. So what happens if you realize during the hearing um, that you neglected to administer the oath? Um, well, you can do a curative instruction. So essentially what you can do is you can um, state on the record that you did not administer the oath to the witnesses. You can then administer the oath to them at that time. Um, if you have a witness who has already testified, 
you can ask them if the testimony they provided was the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. If they are in the middle of their testimony, you can ask the testimony that you have provided and are continuing to provide, will it be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Um, the only problem that you really run into is if you've completely closed the hearing, the the witnesses are gone, everyone's gone, and then you realize that you forgot to swear in people, that's gonna be a problem because if someone appeals that case, you will be reversed. So just try to make sure that you do um, remember to do it, uh, especially when you first start with um, conducting civil traffic hearings. I always made sure to have my checklist and that was something that was on there was to make sure to, to swear the witnesses in. Um, but also this is where having a good working relationship with your clerk or your bailiff is very, very important um, because I've had times when I've been interrupted or, or something happened that I lost track um, and my bailiff was the one that clued me in and said, Judge, you haven't sworn the witnesses in. Um, so very good to have someone like that to, to be able to cover your bases for you. All right, so as I mentioned, um, under our rules, the hearing officer can call and examine witnesses, including the defendant on its own motion. Um, that is particularly under rule 16B. Now you wanna be careful about actually calling the defendant and questioning them because we do have, you know, those constitutional provisions. Um, even though it's not a criminal case, you just wanna make sure that you're not in any way um, either accused of or that you actually do engage in some kind of due process um, uh, violations or, or equal protection violations. So um, I would be very weary, uh, wary of calling the defendant if they indicate that they do not want to testify. Um, remember that they're under no requirement or obligation to testify. They can simply sit there and say, well, no, I, I want to see if the state can prove um, that I committed this violation they're not required to say anything or present anything. Um, however, if people do, um, do decide to testify, uh, then as the hearing officer, as the trier of fact, you absolutely have the right to ask questions of witnesses. Now, when you are asking questions, you want to make sure that you remain neutral and that you avoid the appearance of impropriety or that you're advocating for one side or the other. Um, questioning is best restricted to asking for clarification of facts or issues, and I would try to make questions as um, broad and as general as possible. If you start asking very pointed questions, particularly if you ask leading questions, it's going to sound like you are interrogating that witness, um, and that therefore leads to, to, to the implication that you are favoring one side or the other. So. You can definitely ask questions. You can definitely ask questions, particularly to clarify the facts, um, but you wanna make sure that you stay away from very narrow or very or, or leading questions. Um, use of interpreters. So obviously in Arizona, um, we have a very large Spanish speaking population. And so I believe most courts do have um, interpreters on staff. They have Spanish speaking interpreters on staff. Um, so overall, it is a due process right under the U.S. Constitution to have an interpreter provided in court if one is requested. Um, it is reversible error if an interpreter is not, re not provided upon request. Um, and it is actually even reversible error if um, the person does not request an interpreter, 
but appears to be having difficulty in understanding the proceeding due to a language barrier. Um, I know particularly that we had a case here at Phoenix Municipal Court um, where the hearing officer had actually asked the individual if they needed an interpreter. They said that they did not, but throughout the proceeding, um, the individual simply was not very vocal, did not ask questions, and when they did speak, um, they had a very, very heavy accent and just really did not seem to be answering the questions appropriately that the court was, uh, was asking. Um, they just didn't seem to really have that connection. And so um, after the proceeding, um, the individual hired an attorney. The attorney um, appealed the case and the, uh, on appeal, the court decided um, that the defendant um, had not understood the, the proceedings and that an interpreter should have been provided even though at the beginning of the proceeding, the defendant had, um, had indicated that he did not need an interpreter. So that case was, um, it, it, was it was very difficult because when it came back on remand um, and we had to do the, the hearing again, um, the defendant still was not using the interpreter adequately. He kept wanting to answer in English. He kept wanting to uh, force the issue in English. Um, and so we had to keep reminding him over and over again that he had the interpreter and that he needed to use the interpreter. So. And, and, and Judge, I'm pop in here because that, that's pretty fascinating because I think that can put us in an awkward position when you start to tell somebody that I think you need an interpreter. Uh, mm -hmm. So uh, all I'm going to say is that I think that puts us in an awkward position. It, it does, um, especially if they are insisting that they don't need an interpreter. Um, but all I can say is that in that particular case, you know, at the beginning, the judge had asked the person if he needed an interpreter. He said no. I believe he had said in that case no. He thought that he would be fine. And then through the proceeding, um, he did not request an interpreter. He did not indicate at all that he didn't understand. And it wasn't until the appeal um, that he indicated that he hadn't understood what was going on during the proceeding. So just letting you know that it is, you know, it is a possibility, um, but it is a difficult conversation to have. I agree. Um, reminder that in Arizona, a judge cannot conduct proceedings in any other language other than English. And I believe there is a um, opinion from the Judicial Ethics uh, Commission indicating this. Um, when I am using interpreters, particularly if they are not our staff interpreters, um, I recommend placing the interpreter under oath at the beginning of the hearing. Um, and this is the oath that I provide. Uh, the reason for that is because many of these other um, interpreters who speak languages that are not often used, um, they may not always understand that they are not representing the individual and that they cannot in any way try to interject anything um, that is not actually said. They are supposed to interpret only the words that are spoken and not try to advocate or try to assist the individual in any way. Um, now that we do have the credentialing requirements in Arizona, I think this is less of an issue um, because all of the interpreters now who are credentialed in Arizona go through this training, they go through the ethical portion as well, so they understand what, they're, um, what they are able to do and what they are not able to do. Um, but I still like having, I, especially for interpreters that I am not familiar with, I like um, placing them under oath at the beginning of the proceeding. 
Okay. Um, now you can always find that there are some unique interpreter situations that occur. Um, and so when you have these situations uh, occur, try to do your best, um, but make sure that you are um, accommodating the individual. Um, so first of all, with sign language, with American Sign Language or sign language in other languages, um, these interpreters are required to be um, certified and they have been required. Uh, that requirement has been active for over 10 years, at least as far as I'm aware. Um, but in addition, when you have hearing impaired individuals, um, there are many individuals who do not actually know sign language, um, but they may require, or they may be lip readers. And so you can actually get certified lip readers um, to serve in those cases. Um, additionally, when you have um, individuals who do not sign or lip read, um, you can get relay interpreters, which are individuals who actually come in and type um, and uh, they, they are the ones who, uh, they will type out everything that is being said and then the defendant will type out their responses. Um, so those individuals are able to be, those interpreters are able to be used in court as well. Um, again, when you have uncommon or exotic languages, um, you have to try your best means um, to try and accommodate and find an interpreter. So um, I know our interpreter's office does a very, very good job of finding interpreters for, I believe it's hundreds of languages that they have on file. Um, they also have resources through Superior Court as well as through Federal Court to try and find interpreters for possibly any, any language um, that they've encountered. Um, one of the things that's most difficult, especially when you first encounter an individual, is um, being able to determine their language, uh, particularly if they don't have anyone with them who speaks English. Um, so if you're unable to determine the individual's language, usually the easiest thing to do is to ask where, where they are from, um, and then you can try to determine the language from there. Um, but if you have any kind of issues at all, um, try to work with your, your bailiffs or your language um, supervisors for the court so that you can determine what kind of language interpreter to, to order for the defendant. Um, the other issue is if your language specialists um, are unable to locate an interpreter for that defendant's particular language, um, particularly if it's a civil traffic matter, then that case um, should be dismissed because if there's no way to provide the defendant with the means to be able to understand the proceeding, um, then you know you cannot hold a hearing where the person does not understand what's going on. Now, obviously there's, there's more serious um, repercussions with this um, if you have criminal charges or other types of more, um, more serious um, matters, but particularly for a civil traffic violation, if you just can't find anyone, then you just can't find anyone. Um, we do approve, or the, the use of the language line is approved in the state of Arizona, and um, you are to assume that those individuals are credentialed if you do use language line and they, they provide um, interpretation services for you. Um, it, I will tell you, it is very, very difficult to hold a actual hearing with the use of language line because they can only interpret for one person at a time. And so it's a speak in English, wait for the translation, wait for the defendant, wait for the translation. Um, and so it prolongs the, the set, it prolongs the proceeding. Whereas many of your, um, especially the Spanish language interpreters or many of your in-person court interpreters, they interpret simultaneously 
and so it really doesn't disrupt as much of the flow of the proceeding itself. Um, when you have interpreter situations, be sensitive to cultural issues. Um, there may be individuals who are, you know, uh, fleeing from a war in their country or something like that. And if we happen to provide an interpreter who may be from um, a, a warring faction, um, then they may not want to have that individual interpret for them because they don't trust them. Um, we had that situation occur many times before when there was the civil war going on between Bosnia and Serbia. Um, there, there, we've had that come up with um, individuals from Burma. Um, and so just be sensitive to that. If they indicate that they have a, a, a cultural problem with that individual, then um, please be sensitive to that. Um, we've also had some issues with um, some of the Arabic speaking countries, uh, particularly males who do not want to have a female interpreter. Um, so again, it's a cultural issue. If you can, try to accommodate. If you cannot, um, explain it and see if there's any way that, that, you, that they are willing to allow um, the interpreter to interpret for them. Um, as a, a hearing officer or as a judge listening to a civil traffic matter, um, you can question the competency or the accuracy of the interpretation if you feel that it is suspect. Um, we've all, you know, seen those comedy skits where somebody is talking and talking and talking and talking in a different language, and then the answer is yes. Um, and then they talk and talk and talk and talk and talk and talk again, and the, and the, the answer is no. Um, so if you see that situation or if you somehow feel that there is not an adequate interpretation going on, um, you can actually stop the proceeding. You can declare essentially a mistrial and you can order that um, the case be reset and you can ask your um, language um, coordinator to schedule another interpreter in that language but not that same individual interpreter. Um, where it comes into difficulty is when you have issues that are brought up regarding the accuracy of the interpretation. Um, sometimes I've had maybe family members um, or friends who are accompanying a defendant who will raise this and say that the interpretation is not being done correctly. Um, and then, you know, you have to stop and, and ask the defendant if they understand what's going on, if, if things are, you know, if they feel that the in interpretation is being done correctly. Um, but you, you do need to make sure that you um, at least address that on the record and try to determine whether or not you can continue with the hearing with that particular interpreter. Another situation that can occur in our hearings, particularly because we have so many self-represented individuals, um, is dealing with def difficult people. Um, you may encounter defendants or witnesses who are difficult to deal with um, because either they are very um, upset, they're very emotional about what has occurred. Um, I've also had just individuals who just have no respect for authority or for court or even just sometimes just common courtesy. Um, so it is important that you as the judicial officer stay calm. Um, if you become upset or angry, this will only aggravate the situation. Um, if you're unable to keep yourself calm or to somehow try to calm down the situation itself in court, take a recess, take a short recess, give everyone kind of a, a breather and an opportunity to calm down and then return and try to continue the proceeding. Um, you want to make sure that you keep your proceedings as controlled and as civil as possible. 
Um, because like I said, as the judicial officer, you are the one that is setting the tone. Um, and sometimes this even involves having to um, direct the officers to not um, engage in argument or not engage in direct conversations with the defendants. Um, I've had to do that many times when I've had to actually direct officers to talk to me and not to talk directly to the individual. Um, whatever you do, make sure that you keep a clear record, a good, clear record. Um, everything that we do has to be done on the record, but particularly if you have a situation where um, there may be a complaint, um, there may be an appeal, you want to make sure that you have a good, clear record. So again, this is where the relationship with your bailiff is extremely important because they should not be turning off the record until they are directed to do so. You want to keep the record rolling when you have situations like this, especially if you've got individuals who are making threats or who are engaging in very, very disruptive or um, difficult behavior. You want to make sure that that's captured on the record. Um, I was hearing a lot of beeping. I'm not sure what's going on. Judge Ardernetto, are we still okay? Someone, we're okay now. Okay, all right. I just wanted to make sure I hadn't lost you guys. <laughs> okay, all right. Um, burden of proof, obviously the burden of proof in our cases is not like a criminal case. Um, it is a preponderance of the evidence, which means more likely than not. And so as you saw there, you had the, the scales of justice just kind of going back and forth. Um, that is our burden of proof. It is 50.1% uh, um, versus 49.9%. Anything that slightly moves the case one way or another, um, that will uh, that is the side that will win. Um, so it is not a uh, proof beyond a reasonable doubt. It is not clear and convincing. It is the very uh, slight standard of preponderance of the evidence. Um, in every case, the state must establish the following elements. Um, they must establish the date and time of the incident, the location, the jurisdiction, and identification of the defendant. Um, additionally, they have to uh, provide the specific elements um, for the violation that has been charged. So um, with jurisdiction, I always get asked a lot of questions about, um, you know, what if the officer does not tell you something occurred in the jurisdiction of the court? So for us, city of Phoenix, or for you, you know, the precinct of your, of your particular court um, or the county of Maricopa. Um, so if the officer does not say specifically that, but you happen to know that the intersection, I'll take Phoenix, for example, you happen to know that the intersection of Central and Washington is in the city of Phoenix because it's right down the street from the court. Can you take judicial notice of the fact that Central and Washington is within the city of Phoenix? Um, you can take judicial notice of it. Uh, however, you want to make sure that you are very careful that you are making sure that the officers are establishing um, that element. Because if they get into the habit, if the state, if, if these witnesses get into the habit of not providing that information, um, you know, at some point they may come across something that is not readily obvious. Um, let's say, for example, it's on one of the jurisdictional boundaries of Phoenix and Glendale, and you don't know whether this address is in Phoenix or Glendale or not. You cannot take judicial notice of that. And you should not do your own investigation to determine whether it occurred in your jurisdiction or not. 
um, because that is an element that the state must establish. Um, and it's not enough that they wrote the citation and said that this occurred in the city of Phoenix because the complaint is not evidence. So this really is something that should be provided by testimony. Um, recently, I've had um, attorneys from a particular firm um, who do a lot of civil traffic cases um, in the state of Arizona. And they have made the argument that the officer needs to partic particularly say the words in the jurisdiction of this court. Um, now, they have not been able to provide me with any case law that indicates that. Um, and so I have that that argument has not gone anywhere with me. I've denied their motions to dismiss on that many times. Um, but in case you happen to see any of the, the attorneys from this particular firm, um, just be prepared that they will make that motion uh, for you or they will make that motion in front of you. Um, as far as identification is concerned, um, identification does have to be shown um, both in court if the defendant is present as well as identification of the individual at the scene. Um, so the officer has to show that, you know, how it was that they named this particular individual and cited them with the complaint. And if the individual is in court, then they do have to conduct an in-court uh, in identification as well by saying, you know, I cited Joe Smith, who is the gentleman sitting at the other table in the black shirt and blue jeans. Um, again, Many times when a defendant is represented by counsel, um, particularly um, the uh, truck drivers who get citations or individuals who live out of state, um, they do not have the ability to return to Arizona to have a hearing. And so that is part and parcel why they hire an attorney to represent them. So in those cases, they will um, waive their in-court appearance. If they waive their in-court appearance, then they are also waiving the in-court identification. Um, now, there's no actual rule on civil per, uh, for civil traffic violations that indicates this. Um, it can be uh, presumed because we do have that rule in Rule 10, which involves um, documentary hearings uh, that says if, if a person is not appearing in, in court in person, um, then they are waiving in-court identification. Um, but also it just, it just makes sense. It's just common sense that if they're not there, they can't, they can't raise the fact that you didn't identify them in court. Okay. okay. Elements. Um, let, 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 let me stop you there. Uh, sure. Back to the identification. And, and it's pretty clear that if the defendant has requested to appear virtually. They, there is no right to an in-court uh, in identification. Uh, what if the court has said it virtually as a result of the pandemic? Okay. Um, so virtually, are you are you indicating ba like a video hearing, or are you talking about by phone? Either one. Either one. Okay. So for video, obviously, um, you still have the capability of having the person appear. Um, so our particular rules for audiovisual hearings um, indicate that if you have an audiovisual hearing, um, all witnesses must be able to be, uh, to be heard and to be seen. So when we have video hearings, I actually require that individuals turn their cameras on so that they can be seen um, for identification purposes. We don't hold any hearings by telephone because of this exact reason, because there's no way to, um, to establish ID through the phone. Um, however, when we do have individuals who have requested 
um, a telephonic appearance, um, then um, we do make sure that they are aware of the fact that if they are not present in court, then they are waiving that um, in-court identification. So because of that, I don't think that the court can actually require an individual to appear without them agreeing um, to that. So if somebody says, no, I'm, I'm not agreeing to waive my in-court identification, um, then we don't, we don't allow them to have a, an audiovisual hearing based on the rules. So and what we will do then in our situation, because we, and with respect to the telephonic hearings, we do have some courts that are still doing them telephonic. Uh, if the defendant is insisting on an in-court identification, go ahead and reset the matter uh, and require the defendant to appear. Correct. Uh, there is, uh, backing up to judicial notice, there's a question, doesn't the prosecutor have to request that the court take judicial notice? And if the prosecutor isn't there, how can you take judicial notice? Well, and again, because um, because you don't have a prosecutor um, to request that, um, the only way that you can take judicial notice is if it's something that is obvious, again, like, for example, if, if you had something that occurred right outside the courthouse, and so you know that the courthouse is in the jurisdiction. I personally do not take judicial notice for jurisdiction um, because of that reason, because there's no one actually raising that and asking me to do so but I know that there are other judges and other hearing officers who do it. So, and there's no rule one way or the other on it. So, very good question. <laughs> All right, any other questions? Not at this point. Okay, all right, so um, we'll go ahead and proceed. So um, if the state fails to prove, excuse me, if the state fails to prove the elements of an offense by a preponderance of the evidence, you must find the defendant not responsible. Um, so I always get asked this question, what if the state misses an element? So you have an officer who's provided you everything, but they forgot to say that this occurred in the jurisdiction of the court, or they forgot to say it occurred in the city of Phoenix. Um, do you prompt the witness? My answer to that is, again, you want to make sure that if you are asking questions, you are asking them only to clarify and not to assist one side or the other. So particularly if you have someone who has forgotten an element of the case, I do not ask them specifically for the element that they are missing. So if you have an officer who did not provide jurisdiction, I do not ask them where did, they, you know, what jurisdiction did this occur or did this occur in the city of Phoenix? What I do is I ask a general question at the end of everyone's testimony, and I just ask, is there anything else you would like to provide? Is there anything else that you would like to say? If they don't get clued into the fact that they haven't addressed something by me asking if there's anything else they need, to, they would like to add, um, then they've just, they've lost the case. Um, I particularly like to make sure that officers are aware of the fact when I give my ruling, I let them know that they did not provide jurisdiction or that they did not provide the date or whatever the case may be. Um, that's part of their educational um, experience, I think, when they come to court. But also I like to explain that for defendants as well because I don't want someone leaving from the court thinking that, um, 
what they addressed was correct, if they completely had a, a wrong idea of, of driving behavior. Um, but I just like to be able to explain that for both sides as to why they're either being found responsible or being found not responsible. So, um, so yes, you can prompt the state's witness, again, because you have the ability to ask questions. Just make sure that you are not doing it in a way that assists that particular side. Judge? Yes. Do you, uh, I, that doesn't, that does not happen too often, the um, jurisdictional question. I've come across it in preliminary hearings, and I do allow the state to reopen. Mm -hmm. um, and what's, uh, what's your practice uh, on that? So again, um, I, I, I don't have it happen very often except for young officers when they're first starting out. Um, so again, I just try to ask general questions. Um, so I'll ask, you know, is there anything else you would like to add? Even if, if you know, we go back, um, if I do allow the defendant to testify and we go back on rebuttal, I will give them another opportunity again by just allowing them, um, you know, again, asking if there's anything else that they would like to add. Um, but I try to stay away from particularly pointing them to the, the actual element that they have left out just because I don't want to be seen like I'm trying to help the state. Okay, thank you. Sure. Okay. Um, now, what if the defendant address, uh, fails to address one of their charges? So let's say, for example, you have an individual who's cited with a moving violation, a registration charge, and an insurance violation. And they testify and they talk all about the moving violation and they present you with their new registration, but they don't either say or present anything with regard to the insurance. Um, do you prompt the defendant? Now, in this case, um, with defendants, I do, um, because again, these are individuals who have not been given any training in how to, to testify. They haven't been given any, any training in, in court procedure. Um, and for the most part, many individuals, their very, very first encounter with the court um, system, with the judicial system, is through traffic court. Um, and so many individuals just don't know when they're supposed to say something or how they're supposed to say something. Um, so I will, again, just ask them generally. So in that situation, I would say, you also have a charge for insurance. Was there anything that you wanted to say about that? If they say no, then that's fine. I leave it at that and I go on. Um, but I do prompt them because, again, as hearing officers uh, or as judicial officers, we are allowed to give individuals general information. And particularly when you're dealing with pro per individuals, you are allowed to give them uh, some assistance in actually uh, conducting their case. So um, I do prompt defendants if they forget to address one of their issues or one of their charges. And, 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 and I uh, do wholeheartedly agree with that. Uh, it, it doesn't hurt to just say, and, and did you want to respond to the seatbelt violation as well? Uh, they're going to be so worked up about the other charges that they just plain forget. Uh, the other instance where you might want to prompt someone is you get the clever person who, and Judge Via addressed this earlier when she said she'll uh, swear everyone in at the beginning because people don't understand the difference between cross-examination and their own testimony, but you'll get people who think they're being very clever 
by asking questions and cross-examination and they think that they are establishing their case. And so when, it, when it's their turn to testify, uh, do you, you know, did you want to present anything on your behalf? Or, no, thank you. Uh, at that point, I think you can say the questions that you asked were not, were not evidence. Uh, you might want to consider testifying at this point. Right, exactly. Exactly, because they don't know. They don't know the procedure and they don't know the way it goes. But if you do go ahead and make your decision, the very first thing they will say is the judge didn't let me say my side. <laughs> the judge didn't let me present anything. So make sure you give them that opportunity. Okay, moving on to evidence. Um, so per rule 17 of our rules of procedure, um, the rules of evidence do not apply in civil traffic cases except for privilege communications and relevance. Um, now, in the 14 years that I have been doing this, and I've heard thousands of cases, um, I have never had an issue come up with regard to privilege. Um, so I, I don't even know where that would come up um, to, to have testimony with regard to privilege communications in a civil traffic hearing. Um, the only thing I can think of is if we have, you know, a husband, wife, and, and the wife doesn't want to testify or the husband doesn't want to testify, then obviously you can't force them to. Um, even though the hearing officer does have the ability to call and question witnesses. Um, but I've never had that situation occur. But with regard to relevance, yes, that comes up all the time. So um, again, just to remember what is relevance. Relevance is whether the testimony or evidence has some probative value to a material issue at hand. Um, so the judge is the one who's going to determine relevancy in our cases. Um, no objection is necessary, again, because you don't have a prosecutor most of the time and because the defendants are usually not um, represented either. Um, but if a witness or a defendant is giving testimony that is irrelevant, um, the court can advise the witness or defendant that, that the testimony is irrelevant and will not be considered. Um, this is also a time-saving mechanism as well because sometimes you will get individuals who want to give you their entire history um, that they have been driving since they were 16 years old. Um, and, you know, it really is not relevant of how great they were and how they got the highest grade in driver's ed or whatever the case may be. Um, that simply is not relevant to this particular incident at this particular time. Um, so some hypotheticals with regard to relevancy. Um, testimony from someone who was stopped for the same type of violation but received a warning and not a citation. That is not going to be relevant. Obviously, the discretion um, to issue a citation or a warning is with the officer, so it doesn't matter that someone else was not cited. Um, photographs depicting how signs are posted in a different state or foreign country, again, not going to be relevant. Arizona law is what matters, and so um, you're going to be looking at how signs are required to be posted in Arizona. Um, the defendant's MVD record. Uh, this is not relevant in our cases. Um, it can be used for sentencing purposes if you have a prosecutor or if you have the state that is filing allegations of prior, um, particularly for things like insurance charges where you have elevated fines, um, where you have when they've had um, historical priors. Uh, but other than that, the MVD record is not relevant. Um, a letter from an organization that the person is a volunteer every month um, that is not relevant unless they are using it to uh, show community service for purposes of getting credit 
um, for their fine uh, through the use of community service, which that actually um, is not in effect yet, but that would be the only possibility that uh, only possible reason um, that that may be relevant. Um, testimony from the officer that the incident occurred in a high crime area. Um, that is going to depend on the situation uh, because if you have allegations of an improper stop um, or if you have other types of, of um, other types of, of issues that were going along going on along with the stop, um, the fact that it's in a high crime area may be relevant. Um, but if they're simply trying to say it just to show that you know everyone in this area has some kind of violation or another, then that would not be relevant. Um, and the recording of the defendant and officer's conversation, um, again, may be relevant, may not be relevant. You're going to have to listen to it and make your own determination. Um, most of the time, though, this is usually defendants want to have, want to uh, show the recording to show that the officer was being unprofessional or, or something like that. Um, if that's the case, you know, then I usually direct individuals that I do not have any supervisory authority over the officers. Um, and so the complaint about their professionalism or about their behavior has to be addressed to the police department itself. Okay. All right, and some evidentiary issues. So electronic evidence. Um, particularly in the last year, we've seen a lot more use of electronic evidence. So pictures or videos on cell phones or some sort of devices. Um, security camera footage of collisions. Um, people will actually go to the businesses surrounding the areas where they had their collision and ask if they have any security camera footage that shows the roadway and possibly captured the, um, the collision itself. Um, and then of course we also have the officers who are now using uh, and are outfitted with body cameras or dash cams and may have footage um, there. So Rule 29B states that all exhibits offered at the hearing, whether they are admitted or not, are part of the appellate record. So if someone offers an exhibit, even if you don't admit it, you are supposed to retain that um, because if they appeal and say, the judge did not admit this evidence and this is the reason that I lost my case, the, the appellate court needs to be able to see what, I, what that item was. Um, so you are supposed to keep um, evidence if it's, even if it's not admitted. Um, everything offered as an exhibit must be kept in a format that is transferable to the appellate court if the case is appealed. So if a person has a picture on their cell phone and it's only on their cell phone, um, unless there is a way for you to have that person transfer that picture from their cell phone to the court and you can then preserve it in some way, um, then you cannot actually use that photograph for the hearing. Um, so what I always advise, again, always advise people from the beginning of the hearing is if they have any evidence, let me know before we start the hearing. And if I see that someone brings out their cell phone and says, well, they have a recording or photos or something on their cell phone, then I advise them that unless they have it actually on a disk or on a flash drive, um, that there is no way for us to use that item from their cell phone. Now, we are in the process of um, getting a uh, procedure in place so that people would be able to email those items to us and then we could download those onto a flash drive or, or a disk. Um, but our concern is, is that we don't want to do that so often that we are now buying thousands and thousands of flash drives and disks uh, because that's going to be a, a, an expense for the court. Um, so we, we try to make sure that we advise individuals when they set their case for a hearing 
that if they have any documents or any photos that they need to make sure that they are downloaded or printed. Um, and then if we do have individuals who appear and only have items on their electronic devices, um, then the judge will usually contemplate whether to continue the case to allow them to, to bring that evidence. Um, most of the time when we, when we advise individuals of that, they just decide to go ahead and proceed that day because they don't want to come back. Um, so they usually just decide to proceed without the evidence that's on their cell phone. Um, hearsay. Um, so a hearsay is an out-of-court statement offered to prove the truth of the matter asserted. Um, since the rules of evidence do not apply in civil traffic hearings, then hearsay is admissible in our cases. Um, and now what I found is that hearsay seems to be the one rule of evidence that even lay people know, um, thanks to you know law and order and all of these thousands of uh, or hundreds of uh, court shows that are on TV. Um, so people seem to know what hearsay is. However, they don't know that it's rel or not relevant. It is um, admissible in our hearings. Um, so you may have to explain that to someone. Um, however, you can consider the amount of weight that the statement should be given, um, and you may state on the record that you are doing so. So let's say, for example, you have an officer who says that there was an unnamed witness who told him at the scene that the defendant ran the red light. Um, well, this is a statement that's unverified. You don't know who said it. You don't know where the person was when they said it. You don't know what kind of credibility that individual has. Um, so you can assign very low weight to that statement um, if, if you feel that there's nothing else or if you feel that there's no other reason um, to, uh, to give it a higher amount of weight. And I'll just interject here uh, to sure. say just because you have an attorney hearing doesn't mean that the attorney has read the rules of procedure for civil traffic hearings or remembers that hearsay is admissible. So you, you, you have an attorney, chances are you're going to get a hearsay objection. Uh, the, and, and that's all I'll say on that. Yes, and that is very true. Um, sometimes the attorneys um, get mixed up and start will start, you know, um, proceeding under the rules of criminal procedure, um, or they will just forget the fact that this is a civil traffic matter. And so you will get those objections. Um, you just have to remind the attorneys that under the rules for civil traffic hearings, um, hearsay is allowable and that you will give it the weight that is uh, that you determine uh, for that statement. Okay. Um, we also get this a lot with attorneys, um, particularly uh, the, the um, objections or questions regarding lack of foundation. Um, so when you have an investigating officer who gives their opinion on how the collision occurred, even though they did not actually witness the collision themselves, um, the foundation for that is if the officer has told you uh, what training and experience they have in accident investigation. Um, now, again, you're going to be given or, you know, if you have an attorney, the attorneys are always going to question the officers about whether or not they are certified as accident reconstructionists. They don't have to be. They're not reconstructing, reconstructing the actual collision. They're simply informing that based on their um, observations, this is what they determined, um, and, and based on the statements, that this is the, what they determined um, to be the, the, um, the actions um, involved in the collision. I don't want to say result, because uh, there's not always a result, um, but that is the foundation that you use for that. Um, a photograph of a vehicle, or, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. 
if we can back up to uh, the hearsay issue, what if, an, uh, what if someone raises a confrontation clause issue regarding hearsay? It's not a criminal case. So confrontation clause of, uh, applies with criminal cases. Um, again, our rules specifically indicate that hearsay is allowable. Um, so the, the, whole, the whole gist of that argument is the fact that it's a weight versus admissibility. They are, the statements are admissible. You're just assigning the weight that you feel that you determine is appropriate. Okay. All right. So um, going back to the foundational uh, foundational issues. Um, so a photograph of a vehicle or roadway is submitted, but was taken one week after the incident. The foundation that um, will be needed there is whether or not the photograph fairly and accurately depicts the vehicle or the roadway as it uh, appeared on the date of the incident. If there are any changes, then you would ask the individual to say what was different, um, but you can still accept the photograph. Um, and then with radar units, we get asked this a lot, the calibration. Um, now the officers normally do not carry around their calibration logs with them. Um, they will only bring them if they are subpoenaed or requested to bring them. Um, but the officer can provide testimony as to um, when the, the last time the device was calibrated um, and when the device was last checked. Um, so most radar units are only calibrated by the manufacturer or sent in for calibration once a year, um, but the officers are required to check the calibration um, every day that they use that, that unit. So most officers that use it on a daily basis will check it at the beginning of their shift and then again at the end of their shift. Um, radar units are what they call non-self-repairing units which means if it's working at the beginning of the shift and it's working at the end of the shift, then you can presume that it was working during the shift in between those checks. All right, and then for the conclusion of the hearing, um, you wanna make sure that you let everyone know that the, the hearing has concluded so they can't add anything else beyond that. Um, no further testimony or evidence. You'll want to make sure you check with your bailiff or clerk to ensure that all of the exhibits have been marked and admitted, or if they weren't, that they are um, still uh, with the court, that the defendant or the officer doesn't walk away with something that was offered um, but not admitted. Um, and then in giving your ruling, you want to indicate what your findings of fact were, so the facts that the court believes have been proven based on the evidence presented, and your conclusions of law, so applying the facts to each charge listed on the complaint. Um, if you find an individual responsible, you'll make, you need to make sure that you enter the judgment and impose the appropriate fine. Now, if you are giving the individual time for sentencing, so let's say um, you have someone who was found responsible for a no registration charge, but you want to give them time to register their vehicle so that they can get the reduced fine. Um, you are allowed to set off sentencing for 30 days. So if you are doing that, just make sure you indicate that on the record. Um, unless there is a mandatory fine that is required, the fine can be any amount up to the statutory maximum, which is $250 plus the surcharges and fees. Um, you need to make sure that you provide the defendant with the notice of right to appeal or that your staff does that. Um, but I always address it on the record that they are being provided with the notice of uh, right to appeal. Um, and then you have to ensure or have an automated process to ensure that the finding is uh, reported to MVD within 10 days. Um, if you find someone not responsible, then you enter the judgment and refund any, uh, any deposits if they actually did submit a deposit with the court.
Okay, and then I'll go through these very quickly. So um, dismissal of charges. By statute, we are only allowed to, um, to dismiss certain, uh, certain charges. So for no proof of insurance, um, subsection D of the no insurance uh, or no proof of insurance um, statute authorizes dismissal of subsection B and subsection C violations. It does not dismiss subsection A violations. Some officers do charge subsection A. I know some, um, some police departments do not have their officers cite under subsection A, um, but some do. Um, if you do have a 4135A charge, um, you would actually have to have the prosecutor's office either amend that to a B, an B or C violation, and then you can dismiss it, or you have to have a blanket motion or um, a, some sort of um, authority from your prosecutor's office to dismiss those charges with proof of insurance from the date of violation. Um, no license in possession, um, 2831 69 uh, B states that a person shall be found not responsible if they provide proof of valid driver's license at the time of violation. Um, so this is the, you know, I forgot my wallet, I forgot my purse, didn't have my license with me at the time. If they do have a valid license that was valid on that date, then that charge should be dismissed. And then the civil driving on a suspended license also authorizes dismissal with proof of a reinstated driving privilege. Um, for speed complaints specifically, 28707 requires um, that complaints have to specify the alleged speed and the maximum speed, and also the other elements, um, identification, date, time, and location. And that's specific to speed complaints. All right, and so now I will turn it over to Judge Otternetto. Um, do you want to take over the PowerPoint so you can go through your slides? No, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll have you do it because okay. I might the full screen if, if I try to do it. Warner, you are clicking, um, your, your audio is clicking on and off, and, and that is the clicking that we're hearing, so if you can please stop that. All right, so let's... Uh, Let's spend some time on marijuana. And so uh, for persons under 21 years of age, it is unlawful to possess, consume, transport, or transfer without remuneration one ounce or less of marijuana, no more than five grams of which can be marijuana concentrate. The first violation is a civil penalty of no more than $100 to the Smart and Safe Arizona Fund and the court has the discretion to order up to four hours of drug education or counseling. Uh, there's no surcharges or other fees other than the time payment fee. And additional violations are criminal but must have that allegation of priors filed by the state. You're not going to see those in your civil hearings. Uh, it, it's going to be charged as a first offense. Uh, next slide. So there are two new statutes that were added to Title 22, 701 and 702. And those statutes now provide that civil marijuana violations may be filed into justice and municipal courts with, uh, with a citation, with an ATTC. And civil traffic hearing officers may now handle those. Uh, and that's why you will see that. The civil traffic and voting rules will apply unless 
uh, as with the other situations, they're filed with criminal charges, and in which case that's going to be on the criminal side and you're not going to see that. Uh, the statutes do allow the officer to amend the civil violation if, if they're using an old form and it doesn't have a box that just says civil, uh, and it says civil traffic, they can cross off the traffic and use that form. And defaults are going to go to collections and a tax, uh, tax intercept, but they're not going to go to MBD. So uh, we're, we're not going to suspend anyone's license uh, for a civil mo uh, marijuana violation. It is just going to be a monetary fine. Next. Okay. Uh, so keep in mind, uh, you know, and, and put some stars around here. This is only civil penalties for 18 to 20 year olds. If you have someone who's over, you know, who's 21 or over, uh, they they should not have a civil violation. If you have someone under 18, that should be going to juvenile court. Uh, Judge Welty did issue an administrative order in Maricopa County. Uh, and they do want to see the juveniles in uh, juvenile court so that they can have one judge who's going to handle all of the drug violations. Uh, there's an issue with the immigration advisory that's found in Criminal Rule 17.2. And what that criminal, uh, what that immigration advisory says is uh, that it's possible that there are immigration consequences for this if you were to plead guilty to a crime. In this instance, it is a responsible violation. However, uh, marijuana is still a federal crime, and it is possible that, uh, that it, um, it, it, it could have an immigration issue. Uh, my response to that is if you're going to give an immigration warning, uh, then you do it to everyone. You don't just do it to people that you think it might apply to. Jerry, you popped on? I did. And that is, immigration is one of the hanging items that uh, we need to uh, we need to finalize. And uh, when I get back from the Criminal Justice Summit this week, uh, our chief counsel, David Withy, and I are going to talk about that and finalize it. And we are going to propose a short immigration warning uh, on marijuana, something that can be handed out to people as well as read in court, because we believe that most persons will come in and uh, and enter some sort of a, a plea. And so we have to finalize that. Thank you. And for those of you who don't know, Jerry Landau is uh, our uh, legislative guru. He has recently retired, but is still around as a consultant. Uh, so thank you, Jerry, for, for that. There is a pending rule petition that is going to amend the rules of civil traffic procedure to add civil marijuana. I was hoping they were going to change the name. Uh, well, they aren't going to change the name. They're going to change it to the rules of procedure for civil traffic, civil marijuana, parking, standing, and voting. Uh, not necessarily in that order. Did I leave anything out? No, I'm just trying to think of what acronym they're going to use. <laughs> yeah, you know, we yeah. we tr we looked, and and Charles came up with a good idea to shorten it. Uh, but we did look at it, but we did have a concern that if we shortened it, uh, the 
person who is not at all familiar with the rules would not know it's one of those rules that affects these type of cases. So safe rather than sorry, we decided to go ahead and, uh, and leave it. And if a person shortens it within a motion or a reference or something, that's fine. Because we, we do know that people read the rules of procedure before they come into court. Okay, <laughs> next slide. That, that was sarcasm. All right, so this is in your packet as well. We do have a suggested fine uh, amount for Title 36. It is one page long as opposed to the Title 28 list. And you'll see the suggested fine for a first violation is $65. How did we arrive at $65? We did a survey monkey poll of our judges, and uh, those results were anywhere between zero and $100, and the weighted average came down at $65. Uh, so that is the suggested fine for civil marijuana. So any questions about civil marijuana before we move on? All right, next. We do have an update class on Thursday uh, on the uh, changes that will go into effect in, um, as a result of this legislative session. The general effective date is September 29th of this year. Uh, the one that has caused a lot of consternation uh, among the judges is Senate Bill 1551, which does prohibit the suspension of a license for non-payment of civil fines except for CDL holders. Uh, so a lot of judges are concerned that we're not gonna have a real good enforcement mechanism to get people to pay their civil traffic fines. Uh, and that may or may not be the case. And that was, uh, that is the result. Um, so just keep that in mind. Now that has, created other problems because our forms do say that if you fail to appear or if you fail to pay, your driver's license may be suspended. Those are gonna have to change. Uh, there's still a statute that does require courts to say that, and they forgot to change that when they did 1551. Uh, but we're going to work that out. Uh, just keep in mind that effective September 29th, uh, we're not going to suspend for non-payment of civil traffic except for CDL holders. That also means that any pending suspension for that reason is going to have to be unsuspended. Uh, so MBD is going to have an awful lot of work to do. There is a pending rule petition to uh, implement 1551. Jerry? Yeah, uh, you start to hit on it, Charles. Um, we are going to change the forms. Uh, there is a rule petition to look at it, and we are going to update the citation and update the forms. Also, um, the CDL exception to the bill was removed in another bill. So House Bill 2143 uh, removes the CDL exception. Uh, I won't go into the issue about the drafting of it, and that's something that ADOT's gonna have to fix next year, but ADOT's plan is to rescind all suspensions and restrictions. Okay, so, so, that, so that slide should say even for CDL holders. Even for CDL holders. All right, um, so everyone take, take out your pens and change that slide. Don't do it on your computer screen. 
but when you when you do a printout, go ahead and change that slide. Thank and you. And and we are. I have been I've been instructing judges because of a drafting error. The uh, if you restricted a license and you want to keep that restriction, you'll need to notify um, a dot because the the bill that removed the CDL exception used the word revoked instead of restricted. Um, that was simply a drafting error. But we know, and that'll be fixed next year. But we know what it meant. But ADOT considers restriction a subset of suspension, so they're going to remove all restrictions as well as suspensions. Okay, thank you. Next slide. The other big change is for the community restitution or community service rate, and this is this is actually a, a very big change. Uh, and this applies to juvenile, criminal, and civil traffic. It, it's going to apply across the board. Uh, I know most of us, uh, well, the statute previously required that it be set at $10. Now, it, it, on the uh, uh, general effective date of September 29, that will be to the state minimum wage rounded up to the next dollar. So uh, the state minimum wage, at least through the end of December 31st, is $12.15. So any community service credit is going to have to be credited at $13. Um, if you're going to start doing it now, I just go ahead and do it at $13 now. If, uh, the defendant for civil traffic must also agree to the community service, and the judge must select the location for community restitution. Uh, I would say that Arizona is a location or a nonprofit in Arizona is a location rather than being much more specific than that. Uh, it's hard enough for people to find places that will allow them to do community service. Jerry? Yeah, if anyone is you know, complaining about the rounding up, uh, that part of it was written by me uh, because there was broad support for the minimum wage. And I became a lawyer because I'm not a mathematician and divide, to divide the community service by $12.15 uh, would have been kind of a pain. So I, I got the sponsor to, uh, to round it up to the nearest dollar uh, to, make it, uh, uh, to make it simple. And we did uh, standardize it across the three platforms, uh, civil traffic, uh, criminal, and juvenile. Well, well, thank you for, for having it rounded because uh, that will make it more easy. Yes. Uh, the next, uh, Judge Fia? Okay. Oh, I would say yes, thank you. <laughs> yeah, the next change is that civil traffic hearing officers now qualify for redaction status. So if you want to follow the procedure to have your name removed from certain public records, uh, you do not qualify for that. Uh, the next change was uh, for parking violations. Those do include blocking a sidewalk from a private driveway. Uh, House Bill 2425, more uh, commercial equipment violations have become civil violations. House Bill 2294 raises the penalties for repeated failures to yield to emergency vehicles. Uh, so those uh, penalties will start to, to get higher. Uh, next. All right, so 
Senate Bill 1345 adds neighborhood electric shuttle to the definition of a motor vehicle and to 28966, uh, which is the neighborhood electric vehicles. And it does limit their speed and the roadways that they can appear on. Uh, the next bill, uh, Jerry just confirmed that this one was signed, but it was signed with a different number. And so, Jerry, that is. Yeah, I let me. I'm a little trouble with my camera, but I will. Um, I, I have I have it up here, so uh, it is Senate Bill 1843. So that's 1843, and what that says is that waste of finite resources now applies to violations over 30 miles an hour in non-urban and 40 miles. Uh, an hour in urban areas, and if you're within 10 miles of the speed limit. Uh, so the speeding violation has been reduced in more instances to a waste of finite resources. The difference there is the waste of finite resources does not carry points. So that is the advantage for the defendant in addition to usually a lower fine. The next one uh, has passed, but it passed under the Senate bill, not the House bill, uh, and we'll have that updated slide unless Jerry has it offhand uh, in, in the updates class on Thursday. Uh, but if you saw when, when Judge Villa did that list of stuff that we will dismiss, that's going to change on September 29 because the court will be required to dismiss a civil registration violation if the person registers the vehicle after violating the section. Uh, so, a, well, I'm sorry, Charles. It's Senate Bill 1829. 1829. So change your slide. Don't change it on the screen. Uh, and many of the bills that uh, I've talked about or that, that affect us and that we're going to talk about on Thursday, I put on this Hightail link. So you can just click on that link and, and go and read them all uh, for yourself. And at this point, this is, uh, next slide. And this is uh, the point of the presentation where we can go ahead and answer questions. So if you have a question, put it in the chat box or turn on your camera and ask. And, and I do apologize in the past, you know, we would at this point go into one of the hearing rooms and do some mock hearings. Uh, since we're doing this virtually, we're not doing that this year. Next year, we will be doing uh, we'll we'll be doing that virtually again, right, Judge Via? Hopefully. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so we we've locked her in. So, are there any questions about civil traffic hearings, civil marijuana? All right. Either there are no questions, or no one can figure out how to turn their camera on. Yeah. <laughs> so. Uh, we, we did such a great job that there are no questions at all. We just educated so, them completely. <laughs> thank you, Judge Bia. All thank right. You. Well, uh, we will um, be, as always, the COJET certificate is at the end of the packet. The matter of the materials will be in Hightail. There will be a private YouTube link to the webinar, and we will upload as an audio-only podcast as well. Uh, so thank you, Judge Bia. Thank you all for being a great audience today. Have a good day.
Thank you.